Well, good morning, church. I am not Pastor Jacob, uh, but unlike normal circumstances when I get to preach, Pastor Jacob is here this morning, so I wanted to take the opportunity, uh, since normally he's not here, to say what a blessing it is to be a part of a church where week in and week out the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. Pastor Jacob has done an excellent job in the three years, uh, a little over three years that Hannah and I have been here, to uh, keep the gospel at the center of every message spoken. And as as a believer, as a husband, and as a father, I could not ask more of anyone who I would call pastor. So thank you, Pastor Jacob. It is with great appreciation that I get to say that. So, yeah. This morning, we're gonna, I'm going to be teaching from 1 Corinthians 1, and this is, the, this is a type of text that causes one to consider carefully how he preaches the gospel. So as I, I preach, my goal is not that I would impress you, not that I would make you think that I'm a better preacher than Jacob. That's a joke, people, <laughs> to quote Pastor Jacob, one of his favorite sayings. But my goal is simply to preach the gospel of Christ as it is, unchanged, unhindered, and simply pray that you would hear it and believe it. So 1 Corinthians 1, the verses we'll be looking at are verses 18 through 25. And if you'll read along with me as I read from the word of our Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. As a backdrop to this passage, the church in Corinth had issues, to say the least. Paul is primarily writing to them right now because they are dealing with a division within the church. In verse 12, Paul says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. It seems that this division is not over theology or orthodoxy or or even sin, but the division taking place in the church is over personalities. One would say, "I'm I'm a follower of Paul, or one would say, I'm a follower of Apollos, or even one would say, I'm a follower of Jacob. And instead of finding their identity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, they were finding their identity in the people who preached that message. 
And Paul's response to this in verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's point was that though some of them came to believe because they heard him preach the gospel, or some of them came to believe because they heard Apollos or Peter or even Christ preach the gospel, the message is the same. The message is the gospel of Jesus Christ to which we have been saved, and that is the message that we are called to proclaim. Not Peter, not Apollos, not Paul, but Jesus. And so as we look at our text, we see in verse 18 the the subject of what we will be looking at throughout verses 18 through 25 is is the word of the cross. The word of the cross. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that we look at in this passage from 18 to 25 hinges on our understanding and belief in this gospel. So what I want to do really quick before we get into the rest of these verses is before that, I want to explain what is the gospel. Now, I have a resource. I meant to bring it up here and show you all, but it is a book called What is the Gospel? This is a book that I frequently use to disciple students. I have several copies in my office. Whether you're a new believer or an old believer, I want to recommend this to you. Use it to help you understand what is the gospel or what is not the gospel. Use it also to disciple new believers. But these copies are free. If you want one, come let me know. I I only say that because I'm going to give Greg Gilbert, the, the author of that book, I'm going to give his definition of what the gospel only to commend this resource to you and recommend it. So as we, as we go, let's answer the question, what is the gospel? The gospel begins with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1. That's where we have to start. Because in the beginning, God created life. And not only did he create life, but he ordered it. God, from the beginning, has given us instruction for how we are called to live this life. When God created Adam and Eve, he he intended for them to live in the garden under his law and in the perfect joy and fellowship with him, obeying his command and living with him. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they sinned against God and they ate from the one fruit that God had commanded them not to. To eat, And when they did that, they broke the fellowship that they had with God. Even worse, Adam and Eve had declared rebellion against God. It was not simply that they had broken their fellowship, but they had declared themselves enemies of the will of God by denying his authority over their lives. The effects of sin were not limited to the first humans, but they were inherited from then on, from generation to generation. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you reject the one who gives life, then you receive death. 
Sin is the rejection of God himself and his authority over, and his authority over your life, which gives life. So the wages of sin is death. That's not physical death, not just physical death, but that's a spiritual death as well. An eternal separation of ourselves from God, from the presence of God forever. The Bible teaches that the final destiny of unbelieving, unbelieving sinners is eternal, active judgment in a place called hell. But God, in his rich mercy and grace, decided, decided to make a way for sinners like you and me to be saved, to avoid eternal judgment and hell, and to experience eternal life and fellowship with him again. So God sent his son in the flesh to live as a man. He lived a perfect life. He was without sin. He obeyed the will of the Father even to the point of the cross. And as Jesus, the spotless lamb of God, died on the cross, the weight, the awful weight of our sin was placed on his shoulders. And the sentence of death that God had pronounced on rebellious sinners was cast on him. While the life that he deserved and his righteousness was credited to us. But the story did not end there, because the crucified Christ is no longer dead. The Bible tells us that three days later he rose from the grave. Jesus truly is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So then the question is, how are we supposed to respond to that message? Jesus died in our place so that we could be saved from God's righteous wrath against sin, but salvation only comes through repentance and faith. We are called to repent of our sins and to turn away from our rebellion against God. That does not mean an immediate end to our sin. But it means that we can no longer live comfortable with sin in our lives anymore. Not only does this message lead us to repentance, but we turn to God in faith. Faith is founded in the trust that the risen Jesus has saved you from your sins. If God is to count any of us righteous, he must do so based on someone else's record. That's what happens when we put our faith in Christ. All of our sins are credited to, to Jesus who took the punishment for them and his perfect righteousness is credited to us. That's what faith means. To rely on Jesus, to trust in him alone, to stand in our place, and to win the victory over sin and death. So that is the gospel. When Paul refers 
to the words of the cross, that is what he's talking about. That God made man. Man sinned against God and created an eternal separation between himself and God. But God being love sent his son to die on a cross in order that our sins could be forgiven if we put our faith in him and turn from our sins. Our text in 18 through 25 reflects what Paul says in verse 17. God's plan for saving the lost, convincing unbelievers to repent of their sins and to put their faith in Jesus Christ was through the preaching of that gospel message. But Paul warns that if we attempt to use our our own wisdom or our own cunningness to make the gospel sound more eloquent, more attractive, maybe even less scandalous, then we void the cross of its power. This should serve as a warning, especially to churches today, because we we see so many churches getting away from the reality of the cross to a softer evangelical landscape. They get away from the blood and the execution of Jesus Christ so that they can focus on something else and they put the cross over here to the side because that's not attractive enough to the world. The temptation is there, right? We can can attract more people into our building. We can attract more people to the church with a brighter message, with songs that are, that are more energetic or fun and less depressing, with services that are more entertaining and draw people in, with sermons that are less convicting, we can be more attractive to the world. But in doing so, we strip the cross of its power. Pastor Matt Chandler, in his book, The Explicit Gospel, describes this strategy as we end up like Indiana Jones trying to replace the treasure with a bag of sand. We think it will work, but the whole structure comes crashing down around us. Nothing runs to the center of God's kindness and severity, demonstrating his justice his love, and his glory all at once besides his incarnate son's sacrifice on the scandalous cross. So this is the word of the cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, unchanged. So now let us consider in verse 18 why it is folly to those who are perishing. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I have three children, a four-year-old, a two-year-old, and a seven-week-old. Some of you might be thinking, oh, how sweet. Others of you might be thinking, oh, bless their heart, because you've been in this stage of life. One of the greatest, I'll say, joys that I've gotten to experience in parenthood is that when one of my children are sick, we all get sick. Just this week, we began the week with my daughter Adeline having a runny nose. 
by Thursday, after having preached the night before Wednesday night, I could not speak. But in God's wisdom, we have been blessed with modern medicine, and I feel all better now. But one of the greatest achievements that I think we find in our day of modern medicine is that children's, uh, children's medicine tastes like candy. Because when I was a kid, children's medicine did not taste like candy. That's why we have the saying, that tastes like cough syrup. Because it was disgusting. And I did not want to take that medicine. I would have chosen to be sick rather than to take another sip of that cough medicine that was supposed to taste like cherry. But Dr. Mom always knew best. And she knew that to get well, I would have to take that medicine. But I'd sooner remain sick. And so I fought it because of how terrible it tasted. It did not matter that it would make me well. The medicine was disgusting. And so is the cross to those who are perishing. Why? Because men think themselves wiser than God. This is nothing new. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, men have been attempting to outsmart God. Adam and Eve in the garden believed that they could be like God if they just ate from the fruit that he commanded them not to eat. Cain murdered his brother Abel, and when God questioned him, where is Abel? Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? At Babel, men convinced themselves that they could make a name for themselves if they built a tower up to heaven. Abraham and Sarah, tired of waiting on the promise of God, convinced themselves that they could fulfill God's promise through other means. And so Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham as his wife. In Isaiah's day, Israel, no longer trusting in God, turned to foreign nations and foreign gods for their wisdom and power. In verse 19, Paul quotes Isaiah 29, verse 14, when he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. In verse 20, he lays down these questions, almost as if a challenge, when he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For all its wisdom, for all its philosophy, and for all of its thinkers, the world could never match wits with God. And in Isaiah 40, verses 13 through 14, God says, Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and whom did he who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And who taught him knowledge? And who showed him the way of understanding? And of course, the answer is no one. And so because men who cannot understand the ways of God thought themselves wiser than God, the word of the cross is folly 
to them. And in verse 22, we see, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. To the Jews, the the cross is a stumbling block. Why? Because the Jews seek signs. All throughout the Gospels, there are occasions where Jesus is surrounded by crowds of people attempting to see him perform a sign or attempting to have some miracle performed on themselves. Some come to be healed. Some come to see Jesus heal. And in John chapter 6, we see such a crowd surrounding Jesus. This very crowd, the day before was among the 5,000 that Jesus fed with only five loaves of bread and two fish. They were there, and they witnessed that miracle. And yet, in John 6, they, they come to him again, and they have the audacity to say, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Even after witnessing him feed 5,000, they would ask such a thing. To the Jews, the cross is not a sign of God's love and mercy, but a sign of God's curse. Paul saying that we preach Christ crucified would have been the ultimate divine contradiction to the Jews. How can you say Christ crucified for the Jews, this, this would have made as much sense as fried ice. You cannot have a crucified Messiah because Messiah means power and triumph and splendor, while crucifixion means humility and weakness and defeat. One can have a Messiah and one can have a crucifixion, but one cannot have both. And what's worse, even for the Jews, is according to their own law, Deuteronomy 21, 23, it says, because anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. How can the chosen one be under the curse of God? How can you have Christ crucified? This was a stumbling block to the Jews. To the Gentiles, the cross was the folly of God. It's hard for us in modern Christianity especially to imagine this because we love the cross, right? To us, the cross is God's symbol of love and mercy and sacrifice for his people. So we wear the cross around our neck and we put the cross on our doorposts and we put the cross at the top of our steeples so that the whole community can see that we love the cross of Christ. But to the Greek, this was madness. How could God allow himself to be crucified by his enemies? Was God outsmarted by the Jewish leaders? Was he too weak to fend off the crowds? No one in their right mind would dream up a scheme such as the cross as God's mean to rescue his people from their sins. From the perspective of the world, it just makes no sense. Why would God, God, the the creator 
and the ruler of the entire universe? Why would he become a man, a creature, and not a king or a great warrior, but the son of a carpenter? And then why would he not rise to power and conquer? Instead, all he is able to manage is 12 disciples, one of which even betrays him to the Jews. And then why would that God allow himself to get captured and crucified all for the sake of those who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him? It is too humiliating for God. For both the Jews and the Gentiles, the ultimate idolatry is insisting that God conform to their own views of how God should act. If God really is wise and powerful, then surely this is what he will do. And the sin is the same. Man projects his expectations of what God should do, thinking himself wiser than God. Thinking himself wiser than God. Man expects God to act the way that he wants God to act. And so we see why the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But now let us take a look at why the word of the cross is the power of God to those who are being saved. The problem that the world faces when dealing with the cross is pride. Pride convinces man that he is able to earn his own salvation or he is able to figure out his own way. How often have we heard stories of family road trips getting sidelined because dads refuse to ask for directions? Man puts pride in his own wisdom and his own understanding. And when it comes to the gospel, there's two things people hate. People hate to admit their sinfulness and people hate to admit their complete helplessness. But the cross of Christ demands that we acknowledge both. The cross of Christ demands that we acknowledge both that we are great sinners and completely unable to help ourselves. That is why the word of the cross is the power of God. The power of God. This is not man's power by which he is being saved. He's not being saved by his own wisdom. He is being saved by the power of God. Man did not search the cosmos and study the stars in order to figure out a way to salvation. So how does anyone believe? If we were all perishing, we obviously we cannot say that we were wise enough to figure out this fate. Maybe we should say we were dumb enough to figure it out. But thankfully, it's not our own wisdom or our own lack thereof that leads us to faith. But it is the calling of God to those who are called Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. How does one who sees the 
across as foolishness become convinced of its wisdom and power? He is called by God. We refer to this as effectual calling. It is not as a friend inviting another friend to grab lunch sometime because neither knows if lunch is ever going to actually happen. That is an ambiguous invitation. It's an external invitation. When we hear the gospel preached, that is an external calling for us to respond. But God's call, God's effectual calling is not external, it is internal. And it precedes conversion. It begins the moment the Spirit of God starts to work in the heart of the believer in order to make their mind and their heart responsive to the gospel. This call sets sinners free from the bondage of sin. It puts new life in the person. This is why someone seemingly dead in their trespasses and sins one day can the next walk in newness of life because of the call of God. What's more is that the internal call of God is indiscriminately necessary for all to believe. Jew or Greek, American or Afghani, white, black, it does not matter, it does not discriminate. No one comes to the Father unless they receive this call from God. And we think that because our children grow up in church and they hear the gospel hundreds of times that eventually they're just going to hear it enough times that they will believe. But the truth is that unless God calls them to himself, they are no nearer to salvation. But when God does call, it's as Christ says in his own words, all that the Father gives me will come to me. To those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it does not matter if you are raised in a home of church-going, God-honoring Christians, or if you are raised in the most hedonistic culture in a house full of pagans, God's calling is necessary for all to believe. John Chrysostom, the early church father, and around the year 400, says this of God's call in 1 Corinthians. With God's call, the stumbling block for the Jews becomes the power of God. And the folly of the Gentiles becomes God's wisdom. When, therefore, they who seek signs and wisdoms not only receive not the things which they ask, but even here contrary to what they desire, and then by means of contraries are persuaded, how is not the power of him that is preached unspeakable? As if to someone tempest-tossed and longing for a haven, you were to show not a haven, but another wilder portion of the sea, and so could make him follow with thankfulness. 
or as if a physician could attract to himself the man that was wounded and in need of remedies by promising to cure him, not with drugs, but with burning him again. For this is a result of great power indeed. This is the power of God to save sinners, to take something that seems as foolishness to the world as the cross and to convince lost, sinful men that this is the power and wisdom of God. So finally, how should we respond to this? For us who are being saved, the cross of Christ must remain the power of God to salvation. We must keep the gospel at the center of our message and at the center of our mission as a church. We face the same temptation today that the church in Corinth faced in Paul's day to make the gospel more relatable, more attainable, more attractive, more eloquent, more user-friendly for the world. But in doing so, in changing the message of the gospel, we do exactly what Paul says in verse 17. We void the cross of its power. And we act as if we are wiser than God. As if his gospel is not enough to save. We must proclaim the unaltered gospel indiscriminately to everyone. Not knowing who is called by God, but expecting the Spirit of God to be at work in the hearts of men so that when they hear this external call, they will believe. So we must not change our message, but we must proclaim Christ crucified. And next, we must not only proclaim the gospel, but we must live as unashamed of the gospel. Romans 1.16, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God does not call us to apologize for his gospel. As if we've just said something rude. We are not called to apologize for the gospel. We are called to boldly proclaim the cross of Christ to all that need to hear it. In doing this, this is much more loving to those that we care about and love who do not know Christ. We think we're loving by by, by not saying something to them that might upset them or something that might cause conflict in our relationship. So we, we refrain from bringing up the gospel. In doing this, we're no better than the Corinthians, no better than the Jews, no better than the Greeks. We declare ourselves wiser than God. We say, God, they don't need this message right now. So we must live 
unashamed of the gospel. And it's precisely because we believe that those who are called by God are those that are saved, not those that are wise enough to figure out their salvation, not those that are able to live well enough to figure out their salvation, but those who are called by God that we're not ashamed of this gospel because we can't say, well, I was able to figure it out and so should you. We can say God was rich and merciful to me when I did not deserve it and on my own I had no hope just as you on your own have no hope. And so we make no apology for the gospel and then finally, To live as though you are not ashamed of the gospel means that you live trusting in God's wisdom. To us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God to what? To, To save, to redeem, to resurrect, to transform. Believing the gospel does not mean, again, it does not mean an immediate end to sin, but it means that we can no longer live comfortable with our sin. Through baptism, we we see the imagery of being buried with Christ in his death. And then as we are raised out of the water, it is the image of being raised to walk in newness of life. This is the power of God, that we were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we are alive together with Christ. This is the power of God. Trusting in the wisdom and power of God means that when we are faced with things like trials and temptations, with temptations, we do not believe the lie that this sin is telling us when it says that I can satisfy you more or I can give you more than what God has already given you in Christ. In trials, we do not believe the lie that if life had gone differently, if things just worked out the way that we wanted them to, that all would be better. But trusting in the cross of Christ as the power of God means that we trust in the midst of our trials and in the midst of temptations that God's will is perfect. And so we live unashamed of this gospel. And so let me urge you Christians, I'll say this and then we'll pray. Let me urge you, as you go into the world, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Boldly proclaim the foolishness of the gospel, the folly of of the cross, because though it may be folly to the world, to those who are called by God, to those who are being saved, it is the power and the wisdom of God. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for this cross. God, that we Even though we are undeserving sinners, God, you found within yourself 
a vast richness of grace and mercy and love towards us. So that you sent your own son to die on a cross in order that our sins might be forgiven. And so we got, God, we ask that those here this morning that have not received this gospel, God, that have not put their faith in you, God, we ask that you would call them out of their sins and call them to yourself. God, we pray whether that they have been here hundreds of times and heard your gospel hundreds and hundreds of times, or God, this is the first time they've heard it. Lord, we pray that you would be working in the hearts of men to cause them to believe. And then, God, we ask that for those of us who have put our faith in you, Lord, that you would give us the faith and the courage and the boldness to proclaim this gospel to a world that would call it foolishness. God, and that in this proclamation of a foolish gospel, that sinners would be raised to new life. Only you can do this. Only your spirit can call those to believe. So we ask this humbly in the name of your son. Amen.